who among us doesn't enjoy a good mystery? And especially when solving it means that I get to bring out my competitive side, even if it's just me against the clock, I just can't wait to uncover all the secrets. So June's Journey is a game that is completely up my alley, and I think you'll love it too. In June's Journey, a hidden object mystery game, you play as June Parker, who's on a quest to solve her sister's murder and uncover her family's many secrets. Each chapter brings you deeper into the story, and it's set in the Roaring Twenties, so beyond uncovering clues, you get to experience the glitz and glamour of the time. June's Journey is definitely not a game I play mindlessly, which I love because I get genuinely invested and a lot of it is a race against time, so there's a little fun added pressure of trying to find the clues as quickly as you can in each scene. There are also tons of ways to customize the island that you're on, learn more about the characters, and then new chapters are added weekly, so you really can't run out of things to explore. So if you think you're up to solve this case, download June's Journey for free today on iOS or Android or play on PC through Facebook games. June needs your help, detective. Hi, I'm Madigan from Your Angry Neighborhood Feminist, a podcast that explores the world through a personal, intersectional feminist perspective. Each Monday, I bring you a brand new full-length episode covering something from a wide variety of topics. And then every Friday, come meet up with me again for a mini What's in the News episode so you can stay up to date on everything that's going on in the world. Check out Your Angry Neighborhood Feminist wherever you get your podcasts. And rage on. Realm Presents Book Burners, Episode 32. Three. Five knights marched toward the abandoned villa. Armored from head to foot, no two looked alike. One wore a mask of thorns, one a curved mirrored plate where her face should have been. One wore mail, one a fluttering multicolored coat bright with gems. One flowing robes that flapped and floated in the light breeze, yet left deep gouges where they brushed the ground, as if the hem was a blade and the fabric weighed 10,000 pounds. They entered the villa. The lead knight stepped on a pressure plate, and electricity arced through her, high voltage, furious. It danced along her skin and gathered into a small fluttering sphere in her palm. She let the sphere go, and discharged into the walls, the woman with the mirror mask pinched salt from a pouch on her belt and tossed it into the living room. The room died. Silence fell. Small noises ceased, barely audible hums and whirs of refrigerator, compressor, water heater, hidden motors, and security systems, all failed. Soundless, they descended into the labyrinth. The lead knight's glove glowed dimly as she neared certain turns, and those turns she took. The others followed her. Ground opened beneath their feet, but none fell. The lead knight dug her fingers into the wall. The second vaulted cat-like over the top. The third did not break stride, her sandals as steady on empty air as they would have been on a battlefield. The fourth followed, his robes darting out like spider legs to span the gap and dig pits into the walls. No one saw the fifth cross. Darkness did not trouble the knights. None of them needed light to see. Behind her thorn mask, the lead knight prayed. She did not like the relics she used. 
Guns, she understood, and knives, rockets, bombs. But the relics scared her. She trained with them. It was an honor to be so trusted, and the relics themselves had been studied, scoured by generations of archivists. They did not taint the soul. They did not tempt or taunt. No one ever claimed they did. There were not even barracks stories about relics whispering to the unwary. No matter how well told, the joke would hit too close to home. The relics kept her safe. She confessed each time she used them, subjected herself to the most rigorous observation afterward. Still, she prayed. The tunnel collapsed on top of them. The second night swung her net and swept the falling rocks away. Near the labyrinth's end, they found the way blocked by stone. The fifth night grasped the rock and pulled it like taffy to make a door. So close now. The leader strained like a hound for the prize and hoped it was really her straining. The armor moved about her like a second skin. When the fifth knight finished reshaping the stone wall, she led them through. There, in a damp round chamber lined with sarcophagi, stood Grace Chen. Echoed chanting filled the room. Water dripped from budding stalactites. They moved. Sal found Perry pinned open in the center of the bone tower. When the tide of light dragged Sal and Aaron in, at first she'd thought to follow the screams, but she could not follow them because they came from everywhere. Bone walls echoed cries of pain. Sal thought feverish, following the fiery cord through the maze, that she might be screaming herself. Turn and turn and turn through the bone tower. She wondered how she'd ever find her way out again. After a long time, she risked a glance back, thinking Lot's wife, thinking Towers of Salt thinking Orpheus. Behind her, the high-ceilinged hall ran straight a hundred feet to the open doors and the skin field beyond. They found Perry soon after. Someone had opened him from collarbone to fork and shucked half the skin and muscle off his chest and stomach, pinning it like a butterfly's wing to the table on which he lay. Silver pins held his arms to the table and his feet. Another long, thin pin pierced his neck. His chest rose and fell. His heart, she could see it beat. He was not dead. She ran to him. Open eyes darted and rolled, staring at nothing or everything at once, then locked on her face. Pupils tightened. She wanted to be sick. She would not let herself be sick, would not let this place do that to her. Aaron swore. His native language sounded like cut flowers. Perry, she said. Come on, let's get you out of here. She forced her gorge down and touched the pin through his neck. Held to the blacktop, choking on his own blood with the other boy on top of him as the fists came down and he can't breathe and he can't breathe and he can't. She pulled her hand back. So, Aaron said, not her brother. This was her brother on the table if she could just get him out. Sal, none of this is physical, remember that. Perry wouldn't have survived this long, pulled open like this in the physical world. Your mind's grasping for categories, shuffling stuff that doesn't make sense into shape. When she'd found Perry in the demon world before, he'd had so few memories because his memories were being used to bind him here. Sal. Her eyes burned and she couldn't breathe. She wiped her eyes on her sleeve. Bubbling shapes had risen from the skin fields outside the tower, viscous and ruby red lurching forward on splashing pseudopods. Well, she'd wondered what happened to the trail of blood. 
I can free him, she said, but I need time. Blood shapes bubbled into the hall and burbled and roared. I'll see what I can do, Aaron said, and her brother's shoulders sprouted wings. Sal turned back to the body, no, to the soul on the table, speared through with silver needles and vital organs, which she was sure meant in this dumb, crazy sideways spirit logic, that he was locked by moments he could not let go. Behind her, Aaron joined battle. The sounds made no sense, searing screams, noises that were colors, impacts that washed over her like heat and made the walls ripple and flex. She ignored it all and grabbed the silver needle. Blood in his mouth, he couldn't breathe, raised his hand to ward off the falling fists. Her gritted teeth widened into a smile. This one was easy. She wouldn't even have to lie. And then he's free, and the bigger kids beside him on the blacktop staring up, bleeding from his mouth, and a pigtailed seraph standing over them both with a rock in her hand and a look on her face like, yeah, you just fucking dare get up. The pin slipped from her brother's throat. She remembered how the rock had felt striking Bobby Gunnell's head. She'd been grounded for a month after and had to sit through a long lecture about proportionate response. But the moment of impact, worth it. Seraph, huh? Perry always had a flair for the dramatic. She tossed the pin behind her and did not hear it land. The walls stopped screaming. Sal, God damn it, she was crying. Okay, keep it together, keep it cool. I'm here, Perry. Sal, it hurts. I know. She kissed him on the cheek, on the forehead. When she drew back, her shirt front was bloody. Come on, let me help. You're not, you know, the hand said helping. She ignored it and reached for the next pin. Grace let herself go. Fights have their own math, a slow balancing of strengths, weaknesses, reach, speed, risk, tolerance, intent. What's my motivation matters almost as much in combat as on the stage. A fencer five points up plays with a different tempo than her opponent, rejoicing in the space to improvise, locking down on defense and trying the odd edge case attack because there's room. A fighter recovering ground sifts chaff for the true golden opening. Situation awareness is more than physical pathfinding. It's deeper than vantage points and ambushes. The internal landscape harbors as many traps and pitfalls as the outside world. Step wrong and you'll collapse. Grace did not like the magic Asante worked behind her. She did not like the angel or whatever in Sal's brother's skin. There had been so many bad decisions in the last few days, so many mistakes. They'd slipped time and again from handholds over a precipice, and still they fell. But she could stand between her friends and the sword. Team One's knights trained with their tools. They used relics collected over centuries, tested and purified. They were surgeons of surpassing skill, wielding blades fine and sharp as whispers. But they were still people holding weapons. And Grace was herself a weapon. She rushed the first night, ducked her gauntlet, wreathed in fire, and so strong a grazing blow would shatter steel, dislocated the woman's arm from the shoulder, kicked out her knee, and moved on to the robed figure, even now clearing the hole they'd opened in Liam's barricade. She caught her about the waist and twisted her whole body. She flew, but her robes splayed and dug into the stone, turned her round, darted tendrils toward Grace, danced between them and hit the woman in the throat, then jumped back toward the door to deal with the third. The first night was still falling. She couldn't keep this up for long. She only had so much candle, only so much life. But that was true for everyone, really. 
At least she could choose how to spend it. Sal pulled the needle from her brother's peeled back chest and tossed it over her shoulder with the others. It fell, soundless. One left, through the breastplate, into Perry's heart. His hands had fallen limp when she unbound them, his legs the same. With each needle removed, the beast within her chest tightened, and the cord of fire strained thin and taut as a rubber band about to snap. Sal Brooks, goddammit. Think about what you're doing here. Behind her, the fight continued. Aaron cried out in a voice like Perry's, but deeper, mixed with drums or an eagle's cry or a horn or all of the above. She did not look back. The bone tower changed around her as she unpinned her brother's soul. Was this whole place her brother's body? If so, she forced the thought away and reached for the pin. Do you really want to kill him? I'm freeing him, she said, from you. Oh, yes, the hand replied, freedom. Where do you think he'll go when you pull out that pin? She hesitated. What body's left to him? His own, she said, knowing she was wrong. The body your angel friend's riding now, the one he can't let go? They'll share. Your friend's not the sharing type. Even if he was, there's no room in that body for two. You and me, we get along just fine, because most of me's out here beyond your world. I just need to burn out a space in you to fit my hand, so to speak. It laughed at that. But your buddy, he's all in. You're lying. I would, the hand admitted, for fun or to mess with you and yours. But you know I'm not. You pull that pin and dear darling Perry pops free out into the world you love to call real, finds his body full, then... Well, what do you think happens to people when they die, Detective Brooks? Really die, I mean. He'll find out. Fuck her, trying to shake her, dull her edge, break her nerve. No way it was telling the truth. But she didn't reach for the pen. The hand lied, had lied. It had lied now to save itself, to protect its investment in her, in her world, or just to hurt her. But its voice in her head had a self-assured and vicious edge. This wasn't a poker player daring her to call. It was showing an ace high straight. Aaron, she said, a bit busy now, his voice heavier and thicker and older than her brother's. She turned around. An Escher confusion of blood and light twisted and twisted in her head like one of those magic eye illusions, only all screwy, shapes locking in, manifesting, shifting, breaking apart again. Aaron, is the hand right? Perry dies when I set him free. You'd rather he live here, suffering like this? Answer my fucking question, does he die? So we can't let the hand loose. It's evil, it's immortal, it's incredibly powerful. She wanted to kill someone, she didn't care whom. Is it telling the truth? The confusion of blood and wings said, yes. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every Factor meal is fresh, never frozen, and is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. 
Plus, it's less expensive than takeout, which honestly was my go-to when I just couldn't or didn't have time to cook a proper meal. So whether you're hoping to cut down on spending, being more intentional with your meals, or just want to save time, Factor can help you get after your goals. Besides their meals, which I have to say, everyone has been delicious, they also have more than 60 add-ons to help you stay fueled and feeling good all day, like breakfast and midday bites. They've even got fresh-pressed juices and protein shakes, and I've really enjoyed their variety pack of wellness shots. I love anything with ginger and cayenne. Factor is also flexible with their plans, so you can get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Head to factormeals.com burners50 and use code burners50 to get 50% off. That's code burners50 at factormeals.com burners50 to get 50% off. As a podcast network, our first priority has always been audio and the stories we're able to share with you. But we also sell merch, and organizing that was made both possible and easy with Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell and grow at every stage of your business, from the launch your online shop stage all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. They have an all-in-one e-commerce platform and in-person POS system, so wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. With the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. Shopify has allowed us to share something tangible with the podcast community we've built here, selling our beanies, sweatshirts, and mugs to fans of our shows without taking up too much time from all the other work we do to bring you even more great content. And it's not just us. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Shopify is also the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Because businesses that grow grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash realm, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash R-E-A-L-M now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash realm. Four. When the last night fell, Grace slowed down and heard applause. Behind her, two nights you'd been flying or falling through jellied air struck the ground in quick succession and did not rise. The first night, whose neck Grace held in the crook of her elbow, flailed one final time and passed out. She let the night fall and looked up at Tavani Shah. The woman stood just outside the cave entrance, and she bore no relics that Grace could see. You're good, Shah said. I think you've kept from us exactly how good. Under promise and over deliver, right? That's the idea. Shaw laughed. I'm giving you a last chance to stand down. I won't give up, my friends. I don't want to have to stop you. You can't. Shaw shrugged, and Grace saw a twitch in the other woman's forearm, the arm leaning against the wall out of sight. She thought remote control and burned and moved. She was fast, but not faster than the shock wave. Rocks fell and water behind the rocks as the lake overhead emptied into the cave. Grace dove for Shaw, but the waterfall pressed her down, tossed her up, turned her in a whirlpool slurry, and she gasped for breath that did not come. 
Sha didn't have to wait long for the water to drain. She'd done her homework, no sense drowning her objectives, or her own team for that matter. Romans had built these tunnels, they understood drainage. The shockwave and surprise mattered more than the actual damage. Grace was fast, maneuverable, but so were flies, which was why people invented the fly swatter. She waded through the sludge, drew a syringe from her shirt pocket, and injected Grace with sedative. Inelegant, but she didn't care. She checked her nights, alive, barely, waterlogged. Mungo would not walk again for a while, possibly not ever without a limp. The rest of the team joined her, followed at last by Stretch, who wheeled his partner through the water, walking tenderly as if he hoped to spare the shine on his shoes. She wondered how he'd convinced her men to help him carry his partner through pits and deadfalls. She weighed the demon detector in her hand. Come on, let's end this. No, Sal said. I didn't do all this just to watch him die. Sal. The more he spoke, the more she could see him in the center of that Asher whirl. I can't give up this body. You lied to me. I didn't, I just, find another way. Let him in. There is no other way. Make one. The fire that coursed through her was only partially her own. The hand laughed. She ignored it. There's not enough room in this body for both of us. Then make yourself smaller, or get the hell out, or else I'm not pulling this pin. Then your friends die, and you die, and the hand wins. The hand stays right here with Perry and me, and you. I bet you have something you want to do back on Earth, don't you? Something you want really badly, or else you wouldn't have needed us. So, you get him back, or we all stay right the fuck here with the hand. Should be fun. Maybe the demons will pin us all to those tables side by side. I, his voice broke. There's a way, but it's not. We can't both fit in here together, not like we are, but we can combine. I can let him in to me. Not two people, not a host and a rider like you in the hand. One person. Fuck, Sal said. I can't leave this body without killing it, that's done. But this way you get a part of your brother back at least. She wanted to murder him. She wanted to say no. She wanted to stay here and fight this out, set this whole impossible place on fire until some other solution presented itself. And let Grace and Asante and Liam and Menchu die. No, she did not want that. God damn. Do I have your word, she said. Yes. She was crying. She did not care. She seized the final pin. He's run from colleagues and friends and book burners and criminals to land here in his sister's living room with the book of the hand on the coffee table before him upon a nest of t-shirts. Blood clouds warp and mist on the cover's pale leather surface. No, he knows what human skin looks like by now. He's learned that as he's learned too many things he wishes he could forget. Voices at the door. Sal's there trying to protect him. Sir, I'm a police officer and I'm armed. She doesn't know these people, what they'll do to him, what they might do to her. He'd hoped he could escape them, but he wasn't fast enough, wasn't strong enough, wasn't smart enough. He never has been. But you could be, the book whispers. He's frozen and someone pounds against the door, but time slows and sound reaches his ears, warped. The book has plenty of time to talk. You can hear me, it says stronger now. 
You know what I can do. You've wanted this in your every moment of weakness. Power without fear, strength and independence. Accept me and I'll save you and save her too. He knows how the next part goes. He touches the book, opens it. His tongueless mouth gapes and he weeps blood tears. He is power. He is pain. He is power and pain forever. But Sal, Sal's not fighting. She walks toward him, ignoring the book burners, lowering her gun. Harry, you don't need him. No, she doesn't understand. He has to save her for once, to save them both. And without the book, he's weak, so weak. He knows what they do to people, everyone knows. The book's the answer, the book's the truth. He knows it because it tells him so in a language only they can speak. They understand one another, the book and him. And Sal continues to refuse the script. I'm here for you. We can do this together. Her hand drifts toward him. His hesitates over the book cover. Red mists shape in anticipation of his touch. He ignores them and reaches for her. Somewhere, a scream. Five. Sal woke free. For months, she'd borne the hand, its fingers slithering around her heart and weaving to her brainstem, unawares. For months, ignoring its hooked gentle whispers in her ear. She felt fiercely light, and she heard a ringing silence. Sal was Sal again, and joyous. Then memory caught up with her. She woke free, yes, in a chalk circle to the pound of booted running feet. Her first attempt at speech produced a hacking cough before her lungs remembered how to fill. Someone shouted words she did not recognize. She couldn't even place the voice. Grace, maybe? Half conscious, she reeled to her feet, staggered across the silver circle, and blinked her eyes into focus. I said freeze. That, Sal understood. Also, the guns. Team One troops ringed the far wall of the chamber, crouched, aiming. Laser sights danced over Liam's computer, over his chest. A dot rested on Father Manchu's collar. Three darted across Asante's face. The archivist seemed more annoyed than unnerved. Sal looked down. Five dots burned on her own bloodied shirt front. She understood, then, how Asante felt. Corporal Shaw stood at the room's entrance, behind her troops, and beside her stood Stretch, wheeling the wreck of Balloon in a chair. Sal's gut seized at the sight of them. She filled with anger, or was that fear? They tasted about the same. She remembered a wooden table and stars overhead. Pack for more, Sal said, convincing Corporal Shaw to do your dirty work. You escaped custody, Balloon replied. You're possessed by a demon. You misled your teammates. There's no end to your lies and wickedness. Sal wanted to argue, wanted to strangle each of them in turn, but didn't spare either balloon or stretch a glance. Shaw watched her with the patience of a guillotine. Corporal, these men tortured me. They've killed others. They and the Cardinal have been spying on all of us and conspiring to cover up their crimes. Liam's computer has the proof, a recorded confession. Recordings can be faked. Stretch said, and Balloon continued, so can I witness testimony. If a demon is involved, as one is in this case. The demon's gone, she said. I kicked him out. That's what all this is, a real exorcism, not torture. 
No one has to die today. She hoped. God, she hoped. Perry lay in the circle behind her, unmoving. She wanted so badly to check on him, but those gun sides pinned her with coherent light. Don't you see? We won. She's telling you what you want to hear. The enemy's lies know no bounds. The enemy will stop at nothing. Sal, Manchu said, is telling the truth. Asante nodded. We all heard the Cardinal's confession. And even if we hadn't, Liam said, I have the recording right here. The demons turned them all. The firing team crouched. Sal could not see faces beneath or behind those plastic visors. Where's Grace? Safe, Shaw said. Unconscious, but well. Better than I can say for the soldiers she tried to stop from reaching this chamber. You inspire a particular loyalty, Miss Brooks. Take us back, Sal said. Put us on trial. We'll tell everyone what we know. If the case ever came to trial, if they did not disappear into some cell somewhere, and how much work would Balloon and Stretch need to do before any of them would confess to anything? And give your team more opportunities to escape, and the demon inside you another opportunity to strike at the Vatican. You're being used. This isn't what you were meant for. We have a duty to protect people, and you've been drawn into their sick power games instead. Once they have their claws in you, they'll never let go. Fortunately, Shaw said, we have another option. Shaw removed a tube of black metal from her pocket. Three needle-sharp prongs capped one end, ruby the other. Sal did not at all like the expression on Balloon's face when Shaw produced the device. You've just volunteered, Miss Brooks, to be the first field test subject of Team Two's demon detector. Demon detector, Asante scoffed. We've tried for centuries to build one without success. Team Two claims to have solved the problem. This is, they say, a working prototype. Gem lights up, you're corrupted. They're lying. Do you have any proof it works? Frankly, archivist, I don't think you and your team are in much of a position to accuse anyone who hasn't broken into the Vatican of anything. Miss Brooks, you understand what I'm offering. Sal did. Pass the test and Team 3 goes free. Evidence believed, all debts paid. But she wouldn't pass. There was no such thing as a demon detector. If they had the technology, they would have used it on her. What then? Say she failed. Say that gem glowed from within. Say she launched herself at Shaw, tried to kill her. Say she went down, shit, in a hail of bullets while resisting arrest. Her guilt would be clear. The others could claim the demon controlled them, beg off. Survive, maybe. Slim odds, but better than the odds they face now. Do it, Sal said. Manchu shouted, no. But when he began to move, more lasers swung to his chest. Asante's hand settled on his shoulder. Come on. Sal glared at the corporal. Let's get this over with. The firing team parted before Shaw's advance. She marched forward, grim and inevitable. Neil. Sal glared pure hatred into her, but Shaw didn't seem to notice. Sal knelt. The corporal drew her sidearm and leveled it at Sal's head. She set the detector on the floor between them and circled counterclockwise. Her first shot would take Sal through the temple. When you're ready. The demon detector was lighter than Sal expected. She set the needles over her heart. She tried to plan what she would do when the gem glowed, but now there was so little time left, she could not quite fit everything she wanted to do inside it. Perry was back, at least, or part of him. The team would be safe, and the world. That counted for something. She plunged the needles into her chest and waited for the killing light. But the jewel stayed dark. Interesting.
Shaw said and shifted aim. Mr. Desmond, Mr. DeVos, please do not move. I would not enjoy shooting you. Sal heard an unvoiced much in that sentence. Sal forced herself to stop staring at the gem and look up. The firing team had swung their rifles round to balloon and stretch. Insane, preposterous, you really think? I think, Shaw said over and through their protests. Your own device seems to have exonerated Miss Brooks, which lends new weight to her team's accusations, don't you agree? Sweat ran down Balloon's cheek. Stretch tried for whatever mad reason to run. Shaw's gun spoke once. Stretch fell and screamed. He'll be fine, Shaw said and offered Sal a hand up. Come on. What? Was all the question Sal's numbed mind could frame. They couldn't even rig a decent fake. Shaw drew a nine-volt battery from her pocket, tossed it up into the air, and caught it. A weapon in their hands, indeed. We have brains, you know. The battery vanished into her pocket. Let's get you cleaned up. Oversight has questions, and you owe them answers. And me. Thank you, Sal said to Shaw's retreating back. Behind her, in the circle, Harry groaned and sat up. Sal, I dreamed... Before he could finish, he was there. Epilogue. Sal found Asante swearing in the archive. Can you believe this mess? The demon invasion and their own break-in had left the orderly maze of piled manuscripts a swamp. Sal waded through leather-bound tomes and tried not to step on any scrolls. They might snap. And you haven't even seen inside the secure vaults. I can't believe those morons didn't let me back in earlier. They hadn't formally decided we weren't evil yet. Evil or not, this is damned inefficient. Asante strained to lift a book with a snarling face embossed into the cover and deposited it with a thud on Liam's desk, which had ended up miraculously clean after the chaos, all its loose papers knocked to the floor. We need every second to reassemble the collection. Looks like my grandnephew's bedroom in here, only with less Kleenex everywhere. She blew dust off the book's cover. The growling face twitched, wrinkled its nose, sneezed, then resumed its mute snarl. Asante stroked its forehead. Not to mention tracking down what's lost. The vaults were unsupervised for 72 hours. I don't even know what's missing from the deep catalog yet. Now Arturo's on parole, I hope he understands the top priority for us in the near future will be to track down the absent volumes. Five hundred years of archivists thinking of this as a black box. I barely even know what we had, let alone what's gone. And the further I get into deep storage, the more vaults I find. If my predecessor knew how much was down here, he didn't tell me. One of her braids had come loose, she tossed it over her shoulder. Not your problem, though, I expect. What do you mean? You joined to save your brother, and you got him back. The society hasn't exactly treated you like family, or if they have, I'd rather not know the details of their family lives. Why stay? The cardinal's gone, Sal said. Balloon and stretch, too. Court-martialed, disciplined, exiled, imprisoned. Whatever. We won, in case you hadn't noticed. Still. And Sansoni's cleaning house in Team 2. I don't buy the a few bad apples story any more than you do, but the council's given her a big broom and she's using it. She's one of the good guys, or she never would have helped you rescue me. I don't know if I'll ever be comfortable here, but this is as clean as the society's likely to get. Balloon and Stretch imprisoned you, tortured you, would have killed you, did kill others. They didn't do that on their own. 
Asante reached for a book, which snapped at her fingers. She caught its covers closed and bound them with a leather strap. If I were you, I might see myself elsewhere. And miss all the fun? Sal shook her head. What would you do without me? Asante set down the book. You really are staying. She covered her smile almost as quickly as it appeared. Good, I'll need a stronger back than mine to open the lower vaults. I wondered, Sal said, if you had any books about angels. Somewhere, a young boy runs screaming down the hallway of an enormous mansion. He does not remember what he's running from. He cannot bear to turn his head and look. But whispers catch his ears like thorns, slight, sharp whispers in tongues he does not know. And those whispers and those tongues build nests beneath his terror. He does not understand their promises. The boy does not know that all hallways end. The boy does not realize that the smartest monsters know where you'll run and wait. The boy will learn. The man carries a book into a pub in the Seven Dials in London. He meets a woman there. They talk over drinks. She touches his arm, flirting. When last call comes, the bartender decides to wake the man sleeping at the corner table. He is not asleep. The book is gone. So is the woman. The coroner, later, finds five white dots on the man's arm, positioned correctly for a human hand, but printless and unbruised. In a dark, dry room, someone lights a candle. Sal made it home by sunset, hip-checked the door closed, and dumped her keys into the bowl. Perry, you'll never believe what I found. Just saying those words out loud and knowing she could expect an answer felt warm. Decent pizza? She set the stack of books down on the kitchenette counter. Perry sat in her couch, backlit by setting sunlight. The comatose months had left him pale and shrunken, even compared to his pasty, skinny baseline. But he looked better, if not exactly good. We had pizza last night. Doesn't taste like back home. What, like Domino's? This is the good stuff. Keep an open mind. I asked Asante about angels. We're still not sure what Aaron is, was. But she had a few books that might shed a little more light on the situation. Yeah, Perry said, apologetic. Sal, I wanted to talk to you about that. What's up? She circled around the counter and sat on the couch. He didn't look like he wanted to be touched, drawn into himself, wound tight. Hands together, long fingers interlaced. I keep having these dreams, you know. Angel dreams. He nodded. I think Aaron, he... I I think there was some crazy shit going on with him. Some reason he needed a body, some stuff he wanted to finish. Stuff he would have, might have finished if you hadn't forced him to let me back in. I'm thinking maybe I should look into that. It's only fair, right? She gripped her own wrist. I'd be careful if I were you. There's a lot more to magic and demons than you think, even now. We're only just starting to learn what's out there. Now our names are clear, Menchu's argued us a wider mandate, and maybe we can look into some of these angel dreams of yours. Yeah, his head bobbed on his neck. I figured you might say that. It makes a lot of sense. I'm not sure why I need to do this alone. I just feel it somehow, you know, deep down. Hey, she said, stick with me. I busted you out of hell. There's nothing we can't do so long as we're together. 
She tried to set her hand on his shoulder, but her fingers passed right through him. When he looked up at her, his eyes were clear and pale as ice. I'm sorry, he said, and then he was gone. You are listening to Book Burners, created and produced by Realm, your portal to another world. Listen away. In a world saturated with glossy facades comes a podcast that's breaking barriers. This is Reppin. It's where we do a deep dive into subjects like belonging to mental health, to courage and more. On Reppin, you'll meet the faces you think you know and discover their untold stories. It's real, it's intimate, and it gives you insight into the real person behind the images. In a world of pretense, Reppin strips it all down. No filters, no facades. Learn and be empowered and find inspiration through thought-provoking stories that resonate with your journey. Every episode is an exploration into the truths and values that make us who we are. Representation, it's not just about race or gender. It's about you. Reppin ensures that every voice is heard. Every story is valued. So be seen, be heard, and be represented. Listen to Reppin wherever you get your podcasts. Book Burners is created by Max Gladstone and written by Max Gladstone, Margaret Dunlap, Amal El-Motar, Murr Lafferty, Andrea Phillips, and Brian Francis Slattery. Executive produced by Molly Barton and Julian Yap. Performed by XE Sands. Audio production by Amanda Rose Smith and additional editing by Corey Barton and Brooks Ewald. Original theme by Hashem Asadolahi featuring Jody Redditch Ferber and mixed by Justin Morell. Cover art by Annie Wu. Executive in charge for Realm, Mary Osadolahi. Find more shows like Book Burners by following Realm on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or at realm.fm. <laughs>